You're listening to a teaching from Sundown Church. We hope you encounter God through our podcast and experience freedom in your life. Let's begin with verse one, and I'm just going to read through uh, the, the first seven verses. My brethren, have not the have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and you have respect to him that wears the gold, the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and said to, said to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are you not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts. Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to them that love him? But you have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which you are called? So again, those are the seven verses that we looked at last week all just with, with great clarity talking about this ongoing issue of the day, which was partiality to those who were prestigious and rich. The whole religious system was built on it. The religious system was built on the fact that if you had money or if you were well-educated, it was all because God favored you. God had chosen you for that kind of privilege. So as James, again, is writing, he's dismantling that perspective. But as much as James attempted to dismantle that perspective, it's amazing still in the Christian world how much, uh, how much partiality is still shown to different groups of people. And it's still very, again, it's still very much a, a, a norm within the Christian world. And, and you all have heard me say this before, and, and it's really hard to emphasize just how much I feel this personally. Because any system, any, I'm trying to find a better word, any entity, that elevates one group over the other has something that has some type of inherent flaw in it. Any organization, system, entity that elevates one group to the detriment of another, at least according to the things of God, has some error in it. Why would that be? How could I say that with such certainty? Now, again, we recognize that when I say that, how that by its nature includes church. Because, you know, quite specifically, who is the elevated group in church? Men. Men is the, men is the elevated group. To the degree that men can do certain things that women in most churches aren't allowed to do. Now, 
it's it, it, it's it's one of these things where I really I look and I try to understand and I'm trying to ask God, am I missing something? Are you telling are you trying to tell me something different? Because I do know that God creates order. I do know that God creates structure and organization. It matches him. But I'm not talking about even if I talk about roles of husbands and wives and God gave leadership to a man, I'm okay with that because I know that that leadership of the man was never given by God to create a detriment to his wife. That's the key. Is there order? Is there structure? Yes, but there will never be something, not someone elevated to someone else's detriment. So when you have, as we saw a few months ago, year ago now perhaps, in the, I, I think it was the Southern Baptist Convention, or I don't, it might have been the Baptist General Convention of Texas, when this national or international Me Too movement was, was going powerfully with women, that it came up in, on the floor of the convention with women saying how many times we've gone to pastors, how many times we've gone to church leaders to tell them about what our husbands were doing. And the instructions being, please keep your mouth shut. You don't know what damage it would do. That's elevating to someone else's detriment. But a common, common answer. I, I can remember stories, older, much older stories here, of things occurring in the leadership and the instructions from parents to children were keep your mouth shut because, because of, of the men that those words would affect. So there was someone protected men to the detriment of others. I, I struggle with any system that does that. Will, will he create order? Absolutely. Organization, yes. But that organization is never designed to create privilege. It was designed to create clarity, to create to create movement, ease of movement, ease of things to occur, never to slow it down. God, if God came to open prison doors to set people free, to remove bondage, then we can understand God's heart is freedom. Why in the world would he create a structure that would create something that would do something less than create freedom for everyone involved? Partiality is what's being addressed here and saying, you, I, I, I won't put up with it. It's not of me, and we'll get to the understanding of that in these next verses. So we'll begin next, excuse me, in verse 8. If you fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, then you do well. <coughs> but if you have respect to persons, you commit sin and are, con are convinced of the law as transgressors, as sinners. Listen to it again. If you fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, then, you are, then you're doing well. 
But if you do, as I've warned you about here, if somebody comes in in a gold ring and you say this and somebody comes in poor and you say this, if you're making the distinction and have respect to persons, then you commit sin. This isn't just a, 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 a disruption. This isn't just being inconsiderate. James is taking this into the, into the category because, he, again, he's addressing a system that has been in place for hundreds and hundreds of years where the privileged are taken care of and, and others largely ignored. It's very much that we see in many, some nations today where there's still a caste system where those who are privileged remain privileged and the peons remain peons and you're not crossing those boundaries. James is attacking such a system to bring a leveling to such a system. So he's now saying, <clears throat> and he's going to explain in just a second why this is now sin. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, that first part, James, I think, anticipated that his readers might defend their partiality to the rich as simply loving the rich man as their neighbor in obedience to the law. Like, what, are you telling me that I shouldn't take care of this rich man? Are you telling me that I'm not supposed to love him? And, that, and, and James is anticipating this conversation. That he knows these people. He knows to whom he's writing. And the Holy Spirit certainly knows to whom he's writing. And that he can, they're going to come back with a defense and say, I'm just doing what the scripture says. I'm loving this rich man as I would love anyone else. So here's, we, we continue. But, and then he says, but if you show partiality, you commit sin. Again, the problem isn't that one is nice to the rich. That's not what Paul is addressing. The problem is that one does show partiality to the rich is nice to the, and is not nice to the poor man. So you can excuse your partiality by saying, I'm just fulfilling the command to love my neighbor as myself. He knows, that, he knows what will be coming. When it mentions the royal law, our God is a great king. And his law is the royal law. So when you hear that phrase that James is using, he's not talking about an earthly kingdom, he's talking about a heavenly kingdom, and he knows who the king is. Our King Jesus puts special emphasis on this command in Matthew 22, 36 through 40, and from the Old Testament, Leviticus 19, 18. James is reminding us that the poor man is just as much our neighbor as the rich man is. So you can't just say, well, I'm being a good neighbor to this rich man to the exclusion of the other because Jesus has made a very clear statement that, the, that this poor man is as much my neighbor. What's, what's the story? The good Samaritan. Because he says, which is the neighbor? The one that walked by and saw him in the ditch or the, or the, or the, the man from, from Samaria, the, from that stopped and actually helped. Which one is the neighbor to this poor man? The one, yeah. So he's, he leveled the field by saying, you can say, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I wouldn't be bothered by the fact that you were being kind to somebody who was rich. But when, this, when the ground got leveled, 
But what Jesus has established, that that rich man is as valuable, then you can't say, unless you're going to also say that I'm equally, I'm equally kind to someone who is without. Uh, this, is, this, this commandment, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, is a royal law, not only because it's ordained of God and proceeds from that kingly authority that we were talking about over men, but because it's useful, because it's suitable, and because it's necessary to the present condition of men. It's not theory. It's not concept. It's, it's practical, usable, teachable, effective, powerful, and again, majestic reality to understand that God has no respect of persons according to those things that men have always valued. He's placing true value, real value, where it should be. So verse 10, we continue, and he continues to clarify. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. Now, most of us would not really like that thought. Because we have generally within ourselves done a pretty fine job of sorting into two categories the sin that we really stand against and the sin that I'm going to tolerate because I'm a little bit too deep in it. We create those things that's like, well, I'm not going to do that. I certainly don't do that. I haven't killed anybody. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this. I might be struggling a little bit here. So I'm only struggling a little bit with keeping the law. And, and this is saying, nope. It's all or none. And, that, and, and again, that bothers us. It's like even conceptually, if I'm just doing one thing, how, how then did I become guilty of all? For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now, if I commit no adultery, Yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. Which parts? Both. So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment without mercy, that have showed no mercy, and mercy rejoices against such judgment. So we think, James, could you not have cleared this up a little bit? You seem like you're talking in a circle. Well, he's not talking in a circle at all. He's making some points and he's making, and they're very, very clear. And when we slow down long enough to actually understand what he's talking about, whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. James here guards us against selective obedience. That's what we would call it. This even gets worse when you throw in both sins of commission and sins of omission. It gets real pesky there. Because if I'm going to, unless I'm going to create that split first, these are the, these are the sins of commission, the things I, I do wrong. These are the things I'm just failing to do. And, I, and if, if we're going to split them, and create two categories, which one do we generally put a whole lot more weight on? Which one's far worse? The sin of commission. 
doing wrong things. Which one's really eating our lunch? Commission, I'm omission, the things we're not doing. And it's like, well, I'm, I'm going to church and I'm doing this and I'm doing all the things that I think I'm supposed to be doing. I'm now, I know I'm not doing this. I know I'm not doing this very well. Then what, what does the scripture say? Then we're guilty of all. Now that seems terribly unfair. Now come on, God. Let's get these rules down because if I'm going to follow the rules, I want, to, I want them clear and that just doesn't seem like that's a good rule. It's like when, I don't know if you, if you were in, in that class or not, but I think you were. Somebody left soap on the floor of the, of the shower. Guess who got licks? Everybody, all of us. It was awful. Because every one of us wanted to tell. We know who did it, but he wouldn't fess up. So we stood at the door, Coach Dindy. Next, pow, pow. I think I missed that somehow. I don't know how I missed it. <laughs> Shorty. Shorty left so fast. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, we could take we could we could go the we could go way too far with that. Was that, that in the field house? Uh it was in the the gym that's still there, that what we used to call the new gym that's now one of those older gyms in one of those two locker rooms. Yeah. There, was, there were actually two of those moments because somebody left a towel out one time and we all got it that day too. Man, you started going around, you're just taking care of your neighbor. Because you like, love thy neighbor and make sure he stays out of trouble because you're going to pay. <laughs> we, well, whether we needed them or not, we got them. It sure taught us. Randy, yes, ma'am. Isn't that because the heart of the person that would do one would do them all? Right? No. no. What is it? Good. I'm fixing to get there. Okay. Good thought, though. Good, good thought. You, you're, you're absolutely in the right vein, though. <laughs> yep. The, the selective uh, obedience, the people who will pick and choose those that they want to follow and those that they don't want to follow, uh, the, the, those commands of God, uh, often think that they have kind of safely disregarded the ones they didn't want to obey. But here's, here's at least my perspective on that question. James is recognizing as all of us should, that the law cannot be separated from God's heart, not our hearts, God's heart. That if he's going to say, do not kill, and he's going to say, thou shalt not commit adultery, we see those as two laws or ten laws. The reality is each one of those is only representing one heart. So if you, if you only break one, what have you actually done? You've broken the whole heart. That's why you can't pick and choose because each one of those is representative 
not of just an individual thing, but they're representing the heart of the giver, which was only one heart. And so when, when he's making this kind of a connection, if he genuinely gave us a law that originated in him, think about this. Those laws, even as they were written in the Old Testament that we talk so much about and, how, and what they actually mean to us based on Hebrews 8, 9, and 10, that those laws that we were given, where did they originate? Who wrote them? Whose laws were they? They were God's law. These were not man-made, man-manufactured. These weren't laws that Moses wrote. He wrote them with his finger on rock, and God was etching them with his finger as he moved his finger. These were laws of the laws of God, and they reflected as anyone, any rule that I would make for my children, those rules represent my heart. I can't separate, I can't separate those two things. So if he genuinely gave us a law that originated in him, the foundation of that law, whether written on paper or written in our hearts by his spirit, still represent the fullness of God's heart and the depth of his love. Every one of those things has the full weight of God's heart in it. Make sense? Thou shalt not commit adultery carries the full magnitude of God's heart. God's heart didn't get divided up into 10 pieces with each piece being assigned to some, to some law. No, each law carried like it was a funnel. The fullness of God's heart got poured into this one. The fullness of God's heart got poured into this one. The fullness of God's heart got poured into this one. So when you break one, you're affecting the whole heart of God. And what suddenly to somebody, if you're only breaking one, what gets misrepresented? The heart of God. That's why it's dangerous to selectively choose which laws you want to follow is because everything that God now has written on our hearts where the law is now written, according to Hebrews chapter 10, each one of those things he says that we're supposed to be doing, each one that we do in obedience is representing God's heart, the fullness of his heart and the complete depth of his love so that if I break one, what am I affecting? God's heart. And somebody watching me be very faithful in nine and, and break 10 suddenly has a misrepresentation of what? God's heart. So when they're watching me and I become this walking, talking evidence, I become the expressed image of the Father because the Spirit lives in me and I'm keeping nine of them and they don't know God. They don't know the heart of God. They don't they haven't been taught in their family. They haven't grown up in church. They don't know anything about the heart of God. They just look at me. They just look at you. Well, how does the heart of God look to them? To somebody witnessing us who have selectively chosen which laws we're going to follow. Well, God must love this, the, this and this and this, or hate this, this and this. He must love adultery. Because they're witnessing one thing. That's what he said. The law says you don't, you don't kill and you don't commit adultery. You don't have the privilege of saying, well, I don't kill anybody. 
but I, but, but, I, but I do commit adultery if you say that you break the whole law. Yes, ma'am. Well, it's, it is an interesting question, and I, and I can't, I, I probably wouldn't even be able to give a very complete or suitable answer, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a stab at a portion of it. Because we get to watch God's chosen people in this area. And one of the things that we see distinctly is that Israel, biblically, never invaded. Now they were given the promised land. They were occupying that which they had been given. That was theirs. But we don't, we don't see the, the army of Israel advancing into, by their own interest, into in into properties that weren't theirs. They, are, they had every right to defend that which was theirs. But they, they didn't get in, in, in war, they didn't get to play offense. In war they could, and, and it's still very much what controls so much of Israel today. So much of, of, the, of, the, of the battles isn't them advancing them. They're not, they're not, they're, 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 they are trying to hold that which was given to them. And they've never occupied the full thing that they, that they were actually given as the promised land. They've never in all of history occupied all of it. They've only occupied pieces of it and have defended, have, have had to defend massive portions of it. And we see them while they're advancing into the Golan Heights, Golan Heights and other places like that. No, that's, to them, that's theirs. They're defending that which is there. So there's a lot of conversation about that. And war is one of these difficult topics. I didn't know how to kind of explain that. But uh, the, even, even for the United States, we're not out there trying to grow the United States. You know, that's, that, that hasn't been, I mean, we, there, was a great, there was a great advancements of it early. But when, as set as we are now, we, we we're not typically in a place to say, I'm going to go take another piece of property and I'm going to advance, our, going to advance ourselves in war. So that's a portion of the answer. I think it's a small portion, but it's a portion. Yeah. So does, does, does that clear up a little bit about why James is writing about this selective? Because when, when the Pharisees had selectively followed the law, what was the impression of God? He preferred and, and favored the rich. He, he winked at what they did, largely ignoring any, any problem that was there because of, their, because of their privilege. So James is addressing very much that the reason that we are the followers of the entire law, that because it represents the heart of God, we're not talking about just stuff now written on paper. We're talking about that which has been, now has been written on our hearts because James is writing post-Pentecost. 
that that Holy Spirit that, that put this stuff down on paper now has written it on our hearts according to Hebrews chapter 10. He's saying now you become that law. You're the walking evidence of that law. And if you don't pay attention to what the Holy Spirit's showing you about that and, and functioning in obedience, then there will be a gross misrepresentation to the world, to anyone who's lost, to someone who's seeking, to someone who's searching, the very nature of God will be misrepresented. Thinking of that's going on today? Extremely misrepresented because I, I, I don't typically bring this up, but I love the illustration if, you, if, if, if there was another planet and they heard that on this one that there was a God whose name is love. That there is a God who paid a tremendous price so that these people could live in freedom, could live in unity, could live in harmony and peace with one another and gave them these abundant gifts. And that, and that message has reached this planet and they say, we've got to send somebody to go find out how the, what this looks like. We've got to go find this. And they send this search party to the United States, to, 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 the earth, and they land. And I don't care where you pick that they land. And they, and they take an immediate look at the landscape. Would they be able to find that God? Or would they be able, or, or, would, they, or would they look at people who largely ignore their neighbor? Where is this love that, that this God gave, that this God died for, this freedom that they, that they gave? And they go into churches and they can't find it there. They go back with their report. It wasn't true. We looked. We couldn't find it. You see, unfortunately, looking across the mass of the world. Yeah, if, we, if I could really carefully pick where they landed, then I could say, yeah, they're going to discover it quickly. But I'm going to have to be real selective when or where I want them to land. Because most places, they're, you know, I pick, they pick up a newspaper, they pick up anything, and it's like, oh my goodness, this is not the report I thought. This is not at all where... What happened? You know, there is, we don't, rep, we don't recognize, maybe we don't want to recognize that the real value of the Holy Spirit living in me and letting him have the full attention of my hands and my feet, my mouth, my heart, my eyes, my ears, let him have the full function of me. Let's, those, let's, let's the world see his true nature, who this God truly is. And if I start selectively handing out with by partiality any of the things that James is addressing, then the, their view of God will be greatly skewed. The whole law must be kept if one will be justified by the law. As a matter, I'm going to read this because it, it's easier. In the tract Shabbat, and he gives 
the page number and all that, where they dispute concerning the 39 works commanded by Moses, Rabbi Yaconan says, but if a man do the whole with the omission of one, he is guilty of the whole with the one. Adamson quotes one ancient rabbi who taught, if a man performs all the commandments save one, he is guilty of all in each. To break one precept is to defy God who commanded the whole. You see, one comes directly against God's entirety. Okay, so speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. We are under the law of liberty. Now, again, this is equally, you got to get your mind around this. That, hopefully that piece is clear. Why would he say you break one, you break it all? Because it represents the entire heart of God. Then he comes back and says, so speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. So now we bring up this law of liberty. We are under the law of liberty. This is interesting, conceptually interesting. Get your mind around it. If we as Americans could embrace the law of liberty, how many laws would we actually need written and on the books? We would need none. Isn't that interesting? We would need none. Why wouldn't we need them? Because the law of liberty doesn't say I'd get to do what I want. The law of liberty says I live according to what I should. What I ought to do. I I will always be more mindful of you than me. I'm not going to have to be told to be kind to you because I'm under the law of liberty. I'm not going to have to, I'm not going to, have to be told to take care of my neighbor as, as myself because I'm under the law of liberty. You see, it's, it, it's kind of a, I don't know what part of speech, an oxymoron or whatever, that, what they used to call me at work. <clears throat> yeah, they didn't call you that, did they? No. They, no, they didn't. No, they, they didn't. Calling that. <laughs> the law, again, I wrote here that the law of liberty is a strange way of saying that there real, we could function with no law at all. Law, liberty in its original Greek meant this. I looked it up and I thought it was fascinating. It meant to have license or the liberty to do as one pleases. That was the actual definition. To do as one pleases. Hmm. The root definition of that word was, was the word free born. So the, 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 when, I, when I dug deeper into the root word of the word, this, is, this was the definition. It says, in a civil sense, one who is not a slave. So it means I'm functioning from complete freedom. There's no bondage of a rule that needs to be written over me that, that the bondage has been removed. The second part of the definition says, of one who ceases to be a slave, freed, free, exempt, unrestrained, not bound by an obligation, in an ethical sense, free from the yoke of the Mosaic law. That was the definition of, of that word, liberty. So 
He's saying now, today, you are free to move according to that spirit that's been placed in you. You are free to move in a way that the, that the law, that written law, couldn't create. He's saying, so not, now not only are you, am I talking to you about obeying all the law and not excluding one, selectively excluding one because it represents something larger than just that one law. It represents the heart of God. He's telling us that uh, us in, we, individually, I'm not only saying that, but I'm now I'm functioning un, under a law of liberty. I'm functioning under a law that says I'm, I'm not following something that's written. I'm following a law that gives me absolute freedom to function as I should to function as this law now written on my heart dictates to me. So I'm not, I'm, he's telling us you're absolutely free, absolutely unrestricted under this new law of liberty, unrestricted to move in the freedom that you're just discovering. Because I not only want to remind you that you need to follow all the law, I'm going to place something in you that's going to, want to make you want to follow all the law. You're going to recognize by the spirit that lives in you the reason for the following of the law is because I want to follow, I want to know, I want to express that full heart of God. And I'm now under the law of liberty that will let me do it. He goes on to say, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. So as those who will be judged by the law of liberty... We should always show mercy to others by refraining from that same partiality mentioned. The mercy we show will be extended to us again in the day of judgment, and that mercy triumphant is triumphant over that judgment. So powerful. Mercy triumphant is triumphant over judgment. Verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he has faith, and have not works, can faith save him? Boy, James just opened the pot, stirred it big time. Again, I'm going to give you wide berth to largely disagree with me on this answer. This has, this question has so many arteries flowing to it, so much history bound up in it, so many former teachings wrapped up in it that it's kind of hard to carve all that away and say, okay, God, just speak to me about this right now one time. I, let, me, let me forget everything. So here's the question. What does it profit my brethren? James thought it impossible that someone can genuinely have saving faith with no works. Let me say that again. James thought it impossible that someone could genuinely, genuinely have saving faith with no works. But someone could say he has faith but, show, but failed to show good works. So the question is valid. Can that faith save him? Well, we have to understand that James wrote to, to a a Jewish people with a Jewish background 
that discovered the glory of salvation, the glory of salvation by faith. They're discovering this. They knew the exhilaration of the freedom from works to righteousness. But they then went to the other extreme, extreme of thinking that works didn't matter at all. And this is the debate that we typically hear. What was it? Which way is it? Let's see if we can get to a concise answer. Can faith save him? I wrote here in, in, in my notes to myself, this is truly an interesting question and the answer seems to be simple but profound, easy to comprehend, but difficult to accept because there's so much history. Faith does require work. Next question. Whose work? Do what? Holy Spirit's. Are we talking about being inside and outside of the kingdom? Mm-mm. All inside the kingdom. James is writing this to believers. Is it the work of obedience? It, it ends up being the work of obedience, but just, let's just make it as simple as it is. Again, same illustration. <clears throat> the one I use all the time. If I define faith correctly, faith is the understanding that it takes, it's going to take someone or something else to do something on my behalf that I could not do. Faith is that recognition that willingness to allow someone to do something or something to do something for me that I otherwise could not do. So faith always requires something outside of myself. Faith in myself doesn't exist. I can call that confidence, but I can't call it faith. Because once again, I can stand here in front of this chair Believe and shout to the top of my lungs. You can get a loudspeaker. I can announce it across the entire region of West Texas that I believe with all my heart that this chair will hold me if I sit in it. And what will happen to me is I stand here for a month and two months shouting that proclamation. What will, hand, what will, what will happen to me as I stand here? I will fall in exhaustion. Because that belief, based on our word belief, not on the scriptural word belief, but our word belief, will not save me. I can say, I've got faith in this chair. I can announce, I've got faith in this chair. Is that faith? Is my announcing that I have faith, faith? Mm. What's it going to take for faith to be faith? I have to sit in the chair. Because once again, the minute, the instant 
that the weight of my body hits that chair by faith, what happens? What? It went to work on my behalf. Faith said something has to do what I cannot do. Because right now, let's just think about it. That chair is letting you do the impossible. You are absolutely 100% completing, fulfilling something totally impossible. Believe it? Stay right there like that while I move that chair out from under you. Remove the chair, what's, your, what's the likelihood you could stay in exactly the same position you're in? It's zero. So the chair going to work is allowing you to do something that is otherwise totally impossible. I can't save myself. But I can put my faith in the one who can save me and he will immediately go to work on my behalf and he does not need my help. Because the minute that you start trying to help that chair be a chair, the chair will stop functioning on your behalf. It's like taking off. You get on that airplane and you hit a certain number of knots. You get that airspeed and those wings are tilted just right and you just beat the law of gravity and now you're under the law of aerodynamics. But if you get up in that plane and you decide, I'm tired of the law of aerodynamics. You open that door, what will take back over? That law of gravity will suck you to the ground. You see, we, we live un, under, this, under this reality that faith requires a work. Or I've got to call it something else because I can't call my standing here declaring that that chair will hold me. I can't call that faith. I can call it a belief. I can call it a strong conviction. I can call it, I can declare it. But for faith to become faith, the chair has to go to work on my behalf. So when, when, when James says faith, can this faith save? The answer is yes, it can. When faith is correctly defined as allowing something or someone to do something on your behalf, yes, then that faith saves. And when we recognize that that faith has to be given to us as a gift of God, I'm not even expending my own faith. I'm spending the faith that God gave me because it was a gift of God, according to Ephesians chapter 2. It's not even my faith. It's His faith that I'm spending because He gave me that faith to spend. Have I thoroughly lost you? Faith requires work. Whose work? His. His work on our behalf. His truth to reveal sin. His revelation to introduce us to the Savior. His invitation to be saved. His faith is a gift to the receiver. His blood applied. His power to live. How much of this did he end up doing? All of it. My faith allowed him to do all of it. His faith, my, you know, his, the, that faith 
that saves allowed him to apply the blood, to bring me to the understanding, create the, to create the invitation. Everything done was done by him. It was his work on my behalf. Faith requires work. Thanks for listening to this message. For more resources, visit sundownchurch.com.